Welcome to Homestead Gardening in the Texas Gulf Coast with Kristen Howard. Today, we have a special guest, and we'll be talking about products you can make on the homestead. Katie grew up in Vermont, surrounded by plants and animals, but animals always came first during her childhood. She volunteered at various animal shelters and worked hard to get a bachelor's in behavioral neuroscience and a master's in animal shelter management. Most of her career has been working in marketing, social media, and business development for veterinary clinics and animal shelters. Her passion for educating others on social media soon led her to start gardening and foraging with others on At the Western Wander Woman. She learned that both animals and plants are equally as important in permaculture and homesteading. She spends most of her free time tending to her garden and ducks on a quarter of an acre in Colorado. I'm so excited Kate's with me today because she is an Instagram friend that I've been following for a while. She is at the Western Wander Woman and all of her details and information is going to be at the end of this podcast, but also in the description. So you'll be able to get in touch with her and I definitely recommend that you do. Um, But I want to introduce you to Katie a little bit and have her tell you more about herself. So Katie, tell the, tell the audience more about yourself. Yeah, so um, I grew up in Vermont, and um, I've always really loved the mountains, and I never got to experience the West Coast when I was growing up until we took a vacation when I was around 18, um, 17, and I fell in love with Colorado immediately. So after college, I decided I was going to move here and live here, and I did, (laughs) and um, I ended up going to grad school at CSU. And um, I've been working with animals for a really long time in the veterinary field and um, volunteering in animal shelters, getting a lot of marketing experience. So um, that has always been a passion for me. And my next kind of step after pets was livestock, being interested in livestock. Obviously, we can't have that on a fourth of an acre, but our dream someday is to have like a giant yak farm where everyone can come and like ride them and like a petting zoo type deal, so. So most people say llamas or, you know, you say yaks. Is is there is there a specific choice in, the, in that type of animal or that we're interested in the animal is there something special to Colorado or just you yes both yes to both of those questions so yaks are super incredible I'm literally obsessed with them (laughs) first of all not a lot of people have them um so they're a unique species that um you can get meat from you can ride you can actually milk them to make cheese butter Um, you can just sell the weanlings and stuff, but a lot of people do raise them for meat. And it's really incredible because they are great in the desert climate and like, um, because they're from Tibet. So they really like to be on mountains and high altitude, which we have here. Um, so as livestock goes, they're very easy to take care of. They eat like way less than cows. Um, even though they're a little bit smaller, they still do, um, produce quite a lot of meat and also they have fiber just like alpacas or um, bunny rabbits do so that you can use that too there's a lot you can do with yaks and by fiber you mean um, like sheep wool or something like that where you can turn spin it into a usable product as well correct yes it's really expensive fiber it does sell pretty well and um, it's extremely soft (laughs) we visited two yak farms now and I have another one I have my eye on to go visit so 
So how much space, and I know we're talking about products today, but just because this is a source of, of products, how much space would somebody need to have enough yaks to justify having land to have yaks? You know what I mean? Like, how, yes. how, yeah, okay. So um, they just eat grass, like hay or grass. So you can literally just have a field of like, you know, two to five acres and they'll be fine. Um, I guess that would be good for like about five yaks, maybe. I'd say an acre per yak would be okay. They don't really eat that much. And also you supplement over the winter with hay. So um, if you just have one acre, you can literally have, you know, five to 10 yaks and just feed them hay. But my opinion, these animals do need pasture, do need a place to walk around and um, to explore just like any other animal. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we had goats for a quick minute. And the truth is, <laughs> The, the goats goats are the funniest they will go a long distance but they will also stick to one place and act like they you are giving them nowhere else to possibly go if they get a little prissy um so it's so funny they want out of the crate but then they don't stay too far away from it it's very interesting or they'll go along the outskirts like they're just very strange um we are in very flat land we don't have a lot of hills but goats and a lot of hoofed animals who are able tend to like those terrain they don't really they don't really like to be in a field or cooped up and stuff like that it's kind of interesting I don't know my goat experience was definitely probably different than yours would be in the mountains um especially because goats love to get they like to play king of the mountain they like to get to the tallest you know spot possible but um but as far as yaks are concerned I have heard of yak butter um and I'm sure just the novelty alone of a yak product would be so incredibly interesting to most people. Yeah, I think they are quite interesting. And um, I actually haven't had yak meat or butter or milk yet. So we'll see. I think, I think the time's coming soon. Uh, <laughs> I think you'll have to. So we talked about um, you being in Colorado and in the mountains. And so I know your climate zone is 5B. Um, and you mentioned it's a, a arid high desert, which is so interesting. Um, and of course, this is a, you know, a Texas um, homestead garden podcast. And we're so different with our climate. We're low and coastal and we are in somewhere between 8B, 9A. Um, and the closer you to the coast, you know, the closer you're getting to those tropical regions. Um, but you and I grow a lot of the same things at just different times of year. So tell me a little bit about your climate limitations and advantages, what you have that maybe we don't have or what's different? So um, Colorado is really unique in that when it does have precipitation, it's usually um, very hard and fast. Um, so it can be quite damaging to plants. Um, I don't know if you guys have that as well, but eh, we don't really have like rainy days. <laughs> We get a lot of days of sunlight, which is a huge advantage here, like compared to like, you know, Oregon or Washington where it's gloomy. We have so much sunlight and the plants do thrive, but they also get burnt just like we do. <laughs> so um, I have a shade cloth over my entire garden. It protects it from hail, any type of heavy rains. Obviously it does let the rain through still, but um, it only lets in, I think, 70% of the sun. So it's really helpful and it gives the plants exactly what it needs, not, nothing more, nothing less. So I really like that. Um, but in general, the soil is very um, 
clay in some parts and sandy in some parts. So it's really, it depends in Colorado. Um, I do raised beds so I can control what's in the soil. Um, I don't know if you guys do that too. Yeah, uh, we have a wide range of soils. Um, obviously, the closer you get to the coast, the more sand, but just in general, Houston uh, specifically is more of a swampland. So we do have those mm -hmm. drainage challenges. And I have learned that growing slightly raised, we're talking four to six inches, can make a world yeah. of difference in a multi-day rainstorm. And that's more what we have. Um, we have our flash floods too, but multi-day rainstorms are our kryptonite when it comes to gardeners because our gardens, because um, we have a problem with root rot and then fungal mm -hmm. infections without our plants being able to dry out. And we are usually a lot less sunny. Um, and those cloudy days are advantageous for our plants not burning up. But then yeah. we have all the all the pest infestations, diseases, fungus to deal with. So um, so that, that is a different climate. But at the same time, I mean, it sounds like you have some pretty advantageous opportunities when the weather's perfect and that sunshade solves a lot of problems. So I love that. So I know today we're talking about making products mm -hmm. and I wanted to know why and when you started making your products and, and what led you to such a labor intensive choice? Because I, I I'm telling, coming from the perspective of somebody who most of my friends, my family, and even my husband don't really understand why I make some of my choices as far as making certain products or, or going that extra step when I could just purchase. So I'd love to hear more about how you got here. Sure. So um, in general, I think that, you know, everyone is voting with their dollar. And for me, I wanted my money or my energy to go towards something I would make for myself. So instead of, um, you know, giving big corporations or people that are already billionaires money, um, I either support local people that make these products or I make them myself. And sourcing things locally or organically to make the products is the hardest part <laughs> um, because I don't want to be buying the ingredients for my products from the big box stores either. So I try to grow most of it, but obviously I can't get all of it. Um, but in general, I started to do this because um, my skin is really sensitive. My body is really sensitive. And I've had problems in the past that made me want to go, go towards this and hearing other people's um, experiences making their own things and how it changed their lives made me want to start mine. And I've always been interested in gardening and crafting, um, working with my hands. I think it's a really great outlet um, for mental health, self-care, and also um, just having fun with others. And that's how I connect with people these days is through my hobbies and my interests. And so that's kind of why I decided to do that. And it's really hard, especially in Colorado. The people are very introverted here to make friends. It's very difficult. So for someone my age, like, you know, late 20s, people are off like partying or like dating and I'm not doing either of those things. So I kind of wanted to connect with people who were in the same path of life as me as well, no matter what their age was. That's a great point. You know, I don't know if it's just Colorado, if it's everywhere, but I, I feel the same way as a fellow introvert. 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's just hard anyways, because like you and I, it seems like a lot of your hobbies are single person hobbies, right? Making products, different things. That's a, that's a single person craft where you don't need to have other people around. And I'm the same way. All of my hobbies tend to be single person hobbies. And it's very hard to um, get away from that. And it's very hard to meet people. And I've done the same thing. I started um, with a master gardener program just to make friends near me. And by near me, I mean still 30 minutes away. <laughs> I'm just, I'm a teensy bit in the country still. Um, but yeah, in my mid thirties, um, people have, you know, families and kids and I don't fit with that. So it's, it's, it's hard to make friends. I think that's just the way it is, right? So common interest is always helpful. Um, but those are such good reasons to start making your own products, you know, um, finding not only products or, or, or ingredients that are better for your body, but supporting local businesses and trying to take that extra step of sourcing your ingredients close or, or growing them yourselves is incredibly labor intensive in itself but mm -hmm. it's very admirable i know that you have to purchase some of your ingredients instead of forage or grow them but what do you look for as far as foraging or what 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 are you looking for when you forage and what are you growing um, and maybe how much of your ingredients are you able to source yourself without purchasing versus purchasing local or trying to you know be as conscientious as possible with your purchases. Yeah. So for most of my seeds, obviously, I will either forage them or grow them myself. Um, as far as the other ingredients, I try to um, locally source or forage or grow half of them, at least, because um, most of them are like two ingredients or three ingredients. So that can be pretty easy for me sometimes. Um, but for example, like, when I go foraging, I look for um, plants that are easy to find, um, not invasive, but are growing all over the place. So if I'm taking a lot of it um, because I'm making products for a lot of people, there's going to be some next year. I want that plant to be able to survive next year. And if I take all of its seeds or its whole entity, you know, it won't be able to grow back and that's not healthy for the environment. Um, but I'm also looking for plants that are healthy looking. I don't look for or take plants that seem to be rotted or brown in any way. Um, and when I grow products in my backyard, I make sure that I'm growing like I'd say at least a row. I'm like very bad at concentrating my garden. I think I grew like 80 to 100 different things this year. And um, my partner, Kyle, is always like, well, did you grow enough for tea? I'm like, nope. Okay. <laughs> Next year, I'll just dedicate this bed to this herb or something. But yeah, I'm really bad about that because I always want to try all these cool seeds that you guys send me. And how can I concentrate on my product if I just want to grow this cool seed? <laughs> it, it's so hard. My husband is, I, when I first started gardening, he was like, let's expand, let's expand. And then we expanded <laughs> to that breaking point where we couldn't keep up with it. And he was like, let's have it smaller. Let's have it smaller. And now that I, like, he sees what I do or what I'm, I'm up to. And he's like, oh, he should do this next time. He should do this next time. 
I remind him like somebody has to take care of this. It's not you. We all know it's not going to be you. So there's only so much. Like I have to make a decision on what I grow. And this year, I would definitely say I went a little gourd heavy. And at first, the gourds they they're under control. In May, it's still a little too bit too. It's hot as hell, but it's a little bit too chilly of a hot for them to take off. And then in the middle of summer, they take off and take over. And then you realize you've made a mistake. <laughs> Not until that point um, that you realize you devoted your entire garden to gourds and you have to kind of make some decisions on who's going to go. Um, but the same thing, I have just an insane number of seeds. And I, I eventually am going to have to tailor my garden to like 40 favorites right? You can't grow everything because then you're not really devoting time. But in your case, if you're growing something for ingredients or for, you know, bulk canning or something like that, yeah, you kind of have to have a bumper crop or a situation where you um, have enough of one thing to use it appropriately. <laughs> so that gets pretty tough. But yeah, with the forging, uh, that's pretty interesting that you're able to find enough around your area to actually use and, you know, and leave behind, which is great. Um, is there anything specific you forge for that you use in your products? Yeah, so um, I also, funny enough, grow this in my backyard, not on purpose, but it's just there. So yarrow is a really great one. It's like absolutely everywhere in Colorado. Um, I love it. And um, I've been using it on my skin just to test some products out and, I put it in my deodorant as well, um, but I really enjoy it and I forage it whenever I see it because I just love it so much and it's really plentiful and it reproduces very quickly. Um, also catnip, that will be in my tea that's gonna be released soon. Um, catnip is very, in, like it's in the mint family, it grows like extremely fast as you know. So, um, it's on our bike paths, it's in the forest, it's everywhere here. I'm surprised we don't have more cats. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's super easy to um, forage catnip. Um, another one is fruits in general. Um, I mean, a lot of people don't think of Colorado as having fruits, but we have a ton of crab apples and um, native plums and stuff. Um, choke cherries are literally everywhere. That's one of my favorite things to forage. We've got gooseberries, um, huckleberries, uh, currants, that's what I'm thinking of, currants, tons of currants, wild currants everywhere, raspberries, um, kind of like a bramble, not really what you guys have. Those are really serious, but they're like smaller bramble, blackberry-ish things. Um, yeah, just a ton of different fruits in general. That's one of my favorite things to forage. They're not necessarily in my products um, that I sell, but it's in stuff like jams and jellies that I make. Um, you can also dry those for tea as well, but um, the raspberry leaves are really great for tea as well. And that's another thing I forage. Raspberries, as you know, are also grow like weeds. <laughs> so that's something really easy to forage. I have had a lot of clients move from wherever to Houston and tell me they want to grow raspberries. And I hate being the bearer of bad news, but that's what my job is. And it's the most, it's the saddest thing to tell a client, no, but you can have a blackberry 
And they're not excited about that because let's be honest, a sun-ripened raspberry is nothing like what you buy in the store. Nothing. It's nothing. amazing. Yes. So it sounds like you may, those uh, bramble blackberries that you have might be the same as our dewberries are really similar, but yeah, we have those two and my property huh, is littered with them. I mean, it's a oh, huge no. problem. Yeah. We have to keep them mowed down and stuff in areas where they don't belong. But, um, but I used to forage for dewberries. That was my big foraging thing when I first moved here was dewberries and we'd go to the parks and all kinds of stuff and just load up on those. And they're only available for like a week or two maybe two full weeks and then that's it is that kind of how y'all's is too yeah um I think it depends on the altitude um we're really lucky here so we get to forage things um like on our mainland like the front range area from Denver to northern like Wyoming that um is about 5,000 feet and we so we forage that and then two weeks or three weeks later the mountains which are like 7,000 to 9,000 feet also bloom then. So you kind of get two different foraging times to do this, which is really cool. Oh, wow. That, that is really cool. Um, yeah, I guess it'd sort of be like us driving up to Dallas, except it's a different, completely different like, <laughs> range of plants at that point. But um, yeah. so right now, what are you making as far as, even if it's not products that you sell, what are you making now? And what's on your to-do list to make next that you haven't done before? All right, let's see. So right now I have been working on researching winemaking. Um, grapes are really popular in Colorado right now. There's, uh, I've gotten a ton of free grapes from local just people posting on Facebook Marketplace or Craigslist for free and also um, my friend Jamie at Warbonnet Farms, she um, gave us a bunch of grapes. So now I gotta do something with them because <laughs> I've already made grape jelly and grape juice. And I think winemaking is gonna be my next endeavor. So I've been researching that a lot because um, I do really like wines. And um, I'm gonna start, I think this weekend, a batch and see how it goes. But they are wine grapes. They're all like very small grapes that grow here. Um, I think it's kind of like the same as California. It's just a very dry, arid climate. So they do really well here. I have two in my backyard that hopefully will grow next year. But um, yeah, wine making is on the list and seed saving. I'm like saving seeds like crazy right now. It's it's insane. I have way too many. <laughs> and I'm also making um, powdered greens. So um, to make smoothies more healthy, you can put in some green powder, get your veggies and vitamins in there. And I'm actually dehydrating, um, I guess it would be called collard greens and rainbow chard and Swiss chard. So those are doing all doing really good right now since it's a little cooler in the fall. Um, so I'm trying to pick those so they can have some more leaves grow up and, um, I'll have another fall harvest and let's see what else. Uh, also dried flower pow powder, say that three times fast. <laughs> so wait, um, so, so expand upon the dried flower powder. What, yeah. <laughs> what is that? I mean, I know, I know what it is. What are you using that for? You can use um, dried flowers for literally anything, but I prefer to like kind of 
grind them into a powder with a mortar and pestle, or you could use um, a blender for like a ton of flowers. I do that with my roses to make um, rose salt and rose sugar finishing, like a drink or desserts like caramels or cakes. I think it just looks really pretty because the flower edible, you don't want to use un <laughs> not edible flowers for this, but um, it just makes everything look really pretty. And my goal is to get like a color of each of the rainbow in sugar. So like, I don't know how I'm gonna get some of the colors, but I haven't decided yet. Um, but drying flowers, I've been doing nasturtiums, um, edible cosmos, marigolds, chicory. Um, let's see what else. Um, apparently zinnias are edible, but I'm not quite comfortable in eating those right now. Um, calendula, stuff like that. Um, I've just been drying a ton of flowers to make powder for projects that I'm experimenting with. But I think roses are one of my favorite ones that I do dry because it makes everything look pink and I just think it looks really cute and um, the rose salt you can use on drinks or desserts I I think it just looks pretty in everything and the rose sugar it makes everything taste sweet and it looks cute so that is more um, easy to use for me because you can substitute it in a recipe where you're using sugar and just use that rose sugar. No, okay, yeah. Zinnia, I did not know Zinnia was edible. Apparently it is. It's pretty, like, I don't know, vague online if you Google, is are Zinnias edible? Um, I mean, everything is edible once, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. That's, but that's like the mushroom foragers, like, yeah. uh, theme. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm not quite to their level, to be honest. Like, yeah. I only harvest things and forage things that I know are edible. And I will only taste things that I know or someone else has tasted it first. <laughs> yes, absolutely. There are a lot of things that I'll find. I know I have a ton of natives in the yard, but I am so cautious unless I've seen it three or four times. Um, especially when something's edible and a lot of people don't use it. I want to guarantee because just because yeah. something is edible doesn't mean it's tasty. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and, and like with the gourds, I learned the hard way that you have to start small, that people like, so gourds are mostly from Asian cultures. People who have had an Asian diet for a really long time are used to gourds. They can eat a lot of some of these gourds that can make your stomach really upset. Mm -hmm. But I come from a Midwest culture. We eat <laughs> meat and potatoes. <laughs> and so you introduce a gourd and we're talking about a night of horror um so yeah I definitely think it's it's fine in small doses right but maybe not the best choice um so with with all these products so some of the things you I know that you make um your tallow balm is I would say if anybody online just threw one product they they no is your product and you're the only person who makes that tallow bomb is going to be that thing like that's your thing and even if you make all of these other products that's what I always think of when I think of you as the tallow bomb because it's so unique but um I'd love for you to talk about that product and then some of these others some of the salves and you know homemade deodorants I know 
homemade deodorant something that if you've tried it before, sometimes it's a huge miss. Yeah. <laughs> um, it takes a little while to get right. So if you talk about some of those like easy to make, but time consuming or tricky things, I'd love to hear more about that. Sure. So yeah, I think people do think of Taliban when they think of me, which is really funny, <laughs> but um, because I was totally very vegan for a very long time and until I started having a lot of face issues and I always have had really bad acne problems. Um, I've tried almost literally everything you could think of to help it. Um, but I also started getting like this rash around my nose and mouth and it's very red and itchy and dry. And I tried everything the dermatologist said, nobody online knows how to fix this. Like there is no cure. And I tried a tallow and lard based moisturizer and it completely disappeared. So I decided, you know, I'm going to take the lard out of this and see what I can do making it myself um, because the lard is kind of greasy and was breaking me out a little bit. It also had essential oils in it, which um, can be really damaging to the skin on your face because it's very sensitive. Um, on the body, the rest of the body, it can be okay. But for me personally, because my skin is so sensitive, I really wanted to make a product that was free of all essential oils. So the tallow balm, I sourced the um, tallow, which is the fat around the kidneys of a cow. You can also get it from like sheep and other animals too, but um, I specifically use grass-fed, that way it's the healthiest and the best for your skin. And it has all of those amazing vitamins and minerals in it. And um, basically you render it down just like you would render any type of fat down. And um, you come out with this, it's a little odor. I People say odor free, but I, my opinion, you can never really get tallow down to odorless. Um, it's like a white hard fat that you can mix with an oil to make a salve or a cream base. The towel balm is whipped um, after the fat's rendered. So the whole process takes about two days. And once it's finished whipping, it turns into this creamy, wonderful face lotion. And it's not greasy at all. So you would think it would be greasy because it's made out of fat, especially from an animal. And it's kind of, it sounds kind of gross, but honestly, as soon as you put it on your face, like maybe 10 minutes later, it has absorbed in, especially in the desert here. It's extremely nice to feel some hydration. Uh, we don't get a lot of humidity here. So the tallow balm can be really nice for that, especially people with dry skin. And I know people all over the country get dry skin too. And I also use it on parts of my skin. Um, on your body. It's really nice for any eczema or sunburn even. Another thing, I know this is not proven at all, but I use tallow balm every day as a moisturizer and I have not gotten a sunburn on my face ever, like at all this year. And the rest of me has burned. So I don't know if there's some type of SPF or like natural sun ray blocker in it but it has really helped my skin stay healthy too from the sun because I usually do get a little bit more brown in the summer okay that's incredibly interesting I'm so excited to and you know I'm going to take a little patch of my like 
arm or something and test that out, you know, next summer during peak time period, just to see. Um, but I'm, I'm yeah. excited. I'm excited personally to use the Calibon because as a super sweaty person, um, I still need hydration. Like sweating doesn't mean all oily all this time, you know, um, and we're human in Houston, but sometimes that humidity, you know, depending on what age you are, what skin type you have, you still have dry skin in humid climates. And so obviously the desert is more extreme. Um, but I'm so excited about that because yeah, I completely trust that when you say that Taliban is not going to turn you into a grease ball, <laughs> I believe, I really believe it. Um, but I'm excited to do that because I am a, an acne prone person and for acne prone people, it's more a dry skin problem than it is an oily problem nine times out of 10. So I'm excited about that. I'm looking forward to trying that, um, I know that you create a lot of other products. Um, and so homemade deodorants is one of those things that I know a lot of people have weird experiences with. And I'd love to hear your experience with homemade deodorants and how you've come to a happy, you know, conclusion with that. Yeah. So I'm actually, um, extremely allergic to deodorants. Um, I've tried so many natural ones like after going away from the typical ones you see in the drugstore and um one of my favorites as like a gateway to my product was um the little seed farms coconut oil based one i do really like her um charcoal and lavender one i think that having it coconut oil based was really nice to smooth onto your armpit even if you do have hair there it honestly it's not interfering at all so mine is oil and beeswax and arrowroot powder based and I do add essential oils to it because I think it honestly makes you smell better because who really wants to smell during the day I mean it's disgusting like to be self-conscious around other people is really hard as well and there's definitely an adjustment period with natural deodorants. I mean, I've tried some that for weeks and months, like I thought they were gonna work and they just really didn't. So um, I think you have to really give them a chance just like with any acne treatment or medication or something like that, um, giving them at least four to six weeks to work. I know that can be kind of hard, but um, you should see your body kind of detoxifying in the first two weeks the hardest. And then if it's really not for you, then it's just not. I mean, natural deodorant isn't for everyone. I probably use deodorant maybe one every other day, once every other day, just because my body is so adjusted to it now, it doesn't really even need it. I'm also not running or sweating daily like a lot of people are. Well, and me personally, I used to, in college, keep, and so I went to college in a similar humid climate to what I'm in now, I used to keep deodorant in my car, in my backpack and at home. And I was applying three to four times a day and not getting any relief. And yeah, I did have that purge couple week period, I think with going natural um, a few years ago. And since then, there are times when I can sweat without smelling, right? I, I mean, the deodorant right. isn't, isn't keeping me from sweating, but I don't smell um, and I can go longer and longer stretches without using deodorant. And it's not a problem at all, which is, which is really amazing about natural products. Um, some of the other products that you have talked about, salves, lotion bars, um, 
these are all kind of similar offshoots, right? To mm-hmm. the towel and the deodorants, right? Yeah. And do you sell any of those or, or just not at the moment? So I have been making salves actually this week. I just started. So um, a salve is basically um, one cup oil, one ounce beeswax, and I add a one ounce shea butter just to make it more smooth on the skin. Because I think beeswax personally can be a little bit um, rough or hardening. Sometimes it has like that film on the top sometimes. I don't know if you've had a beeswax product before, but I think it's really nice to mix it in with something a little bit more, um, not as solid as beeswax. So shea butter does a really good job of that. And um, the oil is infused with any type of medicinal herb or plant you would like. I choose to do yarrow because that's something I forage and grow in the backyard and it's beautiful. It like literally heals the skin so well. It's also an astringent so I do use that oil in my deodorant as well. So um, a lot of them are offshoots because it's so easy to make different products with the same ingredients. So like a lotion bar, you would want less beeswax, more um, solidified, creamy things like shea butter and um, hardened coconut oil. So I use liquid coconut oil for most of my products just because it's easier to mix a liquid with a solid to make a cream. But in lotion bar world, you would like everything to be a cream. That way it's super nice to put on your skin and it's also easier to store. So with these natural products, it's also really hard to store them in areas like Texas because it's so hot if you don't have air conditioning all the time. So um, I think that is something that sellers of natural products really need to keep in mind as well. That's a great product. I think a lot of mine have had to be fridge stored or uh, because, or even if we have air conditioning, almost everybody does in Texas, um, but even if you have air conditioning, it's expensive to cool your house to the degree that you, temperature that you really need to. A lot of people cycle and have a warmer home when they're gone at work and then they cool it back down. And you can't really do that with the natural products. You have to be a little bit more careful about what temperature yeah. range you're in. Um, so one thing I'm curious about, you do have ducks now. Yeah. And I know that you're going to find a way to utilize those ducks um, in every possible way that's humane. Yeah. So uh, just for fun, what ideas are you kind of uh, milling about? What What are you thinking about using those ducks for? So we have um, Muscovy ducks. I've taken in a lot of random ducks for free just because people don't know what to do with them and I'm like I love ducks you can just give them to me so I'm taking those guys too but I breed Muscovy ducks um because they are quiet they are clean they're respectful and they really have great personalities to be honest they're great pets um they're not too big but they are meat ducks so they're bred for meat they do lay eggs still but they're kind of a dual purpose animal in that way. And I think they're one of the most perfect gateway homesteading animals out there. Like they're so easy and you can find duck food like anywhere, a tractor supply or whatever. 
Well, but, and, and the thing I love about ducks, which I grew, I do chickens now because the ducks attracted the coyotes too much. They were so loud. But, but what I loved about ch- uh, ducks over chickens was that they did not get sick. They were, yeah. they were kind of gross, right? Like maybe must, must be these are a little bit cleaner in general, as far as their mannerisms, but ducks can play in the mud and unlike chickens, they're not going to get sick. It's great. Yeah. So they're really disease resistant. The only issues I'm having with my ducks um, would be that one broke its leg, um, but that's kind of a fluke incident. And then two females started laying eggs too soon and they were like giant eggs. So unfortunately their like vents prolapsed. So I'm healing them right now so they can continue to live their happy lives. <laughs> but um, yeah, I plan on using their feathers for earrings or decorations their eggs for food and hatching eggs. So I really would like to sell hatching eggs to people because they're not like that hard to transport. You just like wrap them in a lot of bubble wrap. But I think it's really important once you have like really good genetics and um, a good flock going to share them with other people so they can do home studying, grow them, incubate them at their own homes as well. Or even stick the eggs under a chicken or a duck. Like as long as the creature is nesting or brooding like they can hatch it out themselves and the scoby ducks are amazing moms um i cannot wait to have ducklings in the spring i will not be incubating a lot because they will probably be doing it all for me and um obviously ducks can also be meat too and the scoby ducks are kind of like a beef like almost a steak i don't want to compare it to a steak but it's very red um dark meat and they're pretty dense creatures. So like the males can get up to eight to 10 pounds. Um, That's pretty impressive. Yeah. So I don't know about your area, but my area, I was able to sell, they were technically fertilized duck eggs, but people bought them just to eat. I sold Mm -hmm. half a dozen for $10. That was five years ago. Wow. Um, And they were local pickup. I didn't ship them. I did not spend any money on that. And then I was selling, um, I was selling a dozen chicken eggs fertilized. Well, they were fertilized. Everything was fertilized, but I sold chicken eggs for eating at a different price than the larger, really good looking eggs that were better for hatching. But I still sold chicken eggs for half a dozen for $5 for half the price. But still, I sold, I, you put them, you put the price out there and then people decide whether or not they want it, you know? Um, so yeah, I think that for me, selling eggs was actually pretty lucrative. Yeah. It was, it was very hands-off. It was very easy and you're guaranteed to have some pretty good, um, hatching. And I got feedback from several people who hatched saying, yeah, they actually were fertilized. I was impressed. And I was like, yeah, I mean, a rooster is pretty good about that, but I didn't think they wouldn't be fertilized, but I'm, I appreciated the feedback. Right. Um, but the muscovy ducks seemed so interesting. I know a lot of, um, farmers that choose muscovy over other duck breeds. And that seems to be a really great choice. Yeah. They're also really great at foraging too. So, um, keeping pests like slugs or snails off your plants. Um, they love my grasshoppers. We have a huge grasshopper issue here and like nothing to prevent it either. 
Like there's this thing called no low bait that some people use, but like there's not anything else that really helps grasshopper infestations. And I'm talking about like hundreds of them move when you step your foot into another place. Like there's just so many of them and they're gigantic. So getting the ducks this year was a game changer for my garden. And um, I'd say there's less than a hundred out there right now, which is really impressive. Um, so I give a ton of protein too. Yeah. I feel the same way about um, my chickens. I mean, they do not appreciate anything being in their pen. They'll chase off mice or whatever. But I think I told you the story about my ducks. Um, we had a mama rat. We had a duck ramp. So we used a, a car, um, like what you would set up a car on to do some work under like the little footing or whatever. We used that as a duck ramp up into their little teeny pond. It was super tiny. Um, something we had dump out and refill. And there was a rat living in there with babies. And we tipped it over one day and we had the dogs with us, which the dogs, if there was something better than ducks, they wouldn't touch the ducks, right? So we brought the dogs in to flush out these rats and, and babies. The dogs did nothing. The ducks took care of everything. They took, they, they beat up on every living creature that was smaller than them. They had no problem doing that. They are ruthless. I'm telling you, they are some good, they are good watchdogs, if you will, like when it comes to pets, for sure. Yeah, they are. Um, so I'm curious, back to the products, which products can you justify doing yourself and which products are so labor intensive that you don't really recommend people do themselves that it's maybe not worth it to try i think um the dried flour sugars and salt are really great place to start because you really just need salt or sugar and dried flours and then you mix them together in whatever amount you want depending on how colorful you want it to be and I think that's a really good place to start by just mixing things by mixing things together. Um, similar tea is really similar too. If you had a ton of herbs, um, you can start mixing herbs together to kind of finalize the tea that's healthy for yourself and doing it for a reason that you would want to do it for. So if it's something hormonal, some sleepy time tea, you can kind of um, mix and finalize a recipe for yourself that you may want to share someday with someone. But I think mixing things like salts, sugars, and teas are a really good place to start. And also salves in the lotion, very, very easy to, to make by yourself in your home kitchen. You literally just need a double boiler. I actually use a saucepan with just water in it and then it boils. And then a measuring cup in the middle that has like a little lip. It's like a two cup measuring cup. And I put all the products in there, melt them down, stir them up. And then you can add the essential oils and the solid products and after to make your product and just pour it into any type of tin or container after. So that is very inexpensive, very easy to do, especially if you're buying the products um, semi in bulk, like, you know, five to 10 pounds, you can do a lot of it and share with your family for um, holidays and or just break even by selling a few online. 
um, Instagram, you don't even have to have Etsy. Like Instagram is just such a relatable place to sell products just like through your stories even. You don't even have to post anything these days. Um, but the tallow balm, I just, I would not recommend people starting with tallow balm. It is very intensive. Um, sourcing this tallow, I think took me about four weeks to find someone nearby that had the right fat. So the tallow is um, the fat around the kidney of, I use a cow, you can also use sheep, but um, someone had sent me tallow and it was not the right fat. So it was very yellow and mushy and just not the right consistency that I would want to put on my face. So um, that set me back a couple of weeks and a couple of dollars. So you really have to know what you're talking about and also ask the right questions to these um, farmers because they are just think, you know, all beef cow fat is all beef cow fat. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I would definitely say, because I know your tallow requires um, a completely different setup that's exclusive to making tallow. I mean, you're not going to take all of your tallow making um, tools and start doing other things or cooking or doing other, you know. Um, so that's an expense in itself, just to have your setup ready to go for that. But just the process and the labor, I mean, to me, I cannot possibly justify doing all of that work. It just isn't realistic. I would so much rather buy that product from you, which I am so excited to try this. Um, uh, you have no idea. You have absolutely no idea. I'm really looking forward to it, especially going into winter. I'm, I'm excited. Yes. Um, but yes, I completely agree with you that some of those, especially the teas, I think drying herbs and drying different mm -hmm. things is, it's fun, it's easy. Uh, but it, it is a really good start because you can play with it and change things up and you don't, you, you can make a lot of mistakes for yeah. almost nothing, you know? Um, and when we're talking about selling products, I mean, are you in the business of breaking even because you're trying to make products for yourself? Are you in the business of trying to make money? Um, what is your goal there? So because I also do marketing as a full-time job and my side gigs are social media managers. Um, it's really hard for me to sell myself, especially as an introvert. Um, I could sell products to people that aren't mine all day long, but um, when it comes to my own, it's really hard. And I think that I'm never out to like make money and if I do like it's by accident almost um I don't even plan on breaking even I just do it because I really like to do it and I do track my expenses and my um profits I guess through QuickBooks which really helps me to stay on track I just I don't really like doing that math or like looking at the numbers so if something else is doing it for me I'm totally down with that but I really just like experimenting and crafting and keeping myself busy because um like gardening I think making products is also self-care and if you can make someone else's day with your product then why not so um yeah I think when it comes to selling um the towel bomb definitely I would like to make money on that product just because it does take me so long to make and I think that everyone needs it <laughs> like literally that is the one product I would recommend to anyone. But I mean, 
the other things like seeds or rose salt or rose sugar, you know, like the deodorant, they're all kind of, um, kind of wants, not needs, you know, something that someone would want. Um, but I think when you're selling something, it's really important to think about what people need too. That's such a sweet thing to say. I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that in such a good way because today's products what people sell, what you see on the internet is all a, a want. Very rarely does anybody ever consider what somebody would need and try to sell that because nine times out of 10, what people need isn't going to make a ton of money, but want products and impulse buys make a ton of money. Um, so good for you. I'm, that's impressive. And I will say like things like selling seeds and I, I dabble in seed selling, but more to pay for the free giveaways on my Instagram page. <laughs> But yeah, I would say that seed selling is more about making sure people get good quality seeds in their hands and in varieties that I recommend for my area more than it is about making money because there's no chance I am making any money off of my labor. Um, and that's okay. <laughs> like I have to decide where that line is and that's all right. So for new homeowner, so new, new homesteaders rather, a lot of people have been asking me recently, especially, um, is it reasonable or can they homestead on a typical lot? And typical lot, a typical lot is in that quarter acre range, like what you're on. And they're asking me because I'm on two acres and I understand that. Well, I don't use all of my two acres. A lot of it is uh, drainage from other properties. So it's unusable or it is, um, we have a bunch of iron ore, so it's unusable in that way um, or it's tree covered. So I don't use two acres. I, I use a lot less. But how would a new homesteader really get started? I mean, what do you recommend them doing as a jumping off point on a normal, typical lot? So when we bought this house, it's like from the 70s. Everything's really old and not taken care of an older couple lived here so the entire plot was just like dirt weeds that are really invasive not forageable ones and um a lot of rocks so um like every time I look at a rock I just feel so much pain now because I have literally shoveled out so many rocks and our family and friends have too and we just really cleared the way for any type of fresh start here and we also spent a lot of time digging and cutting lilac bushes out um as you know they're kind of invasive creatures i i did keep one in the corner um that's basically a tree i mean has bark on it and everything but once in a while i'll find like a little lilac sucker that just pops up out of nowhere like a hundred feet away and I'm just like where did that come from it annoys me a lot but in general having a clean start and a clean slate if the previous homeowners have not homesteaded obviously you're going to have to start from scratch so once we had the area cleared um we started building so we got all of our wood free from craigslist Facebook marketplace, even our neighbors were like kind enough to give us a ton of stuff to start with a cheap drill off of Facebook marketplace. And we just went to work like yours. They're only about four to six inches tall. Nothing that will like save your back, but it's definitely going to be enough to control 
the soil and dirt in your garden. And that's what I wanted because this entire plot is clay. Like it's it's not conducive for growing anything but invasive weeds, to be honest. <laughs> so um I had a ton of dirt shipped in and we mixed it with some rabbit compost that I had over left over from my bunnies. And that was enough to get us started that spring. Like we just hit the ground running and we had four um, beds to start with and then a couple like corn that I experimented off to the side. And that was really just where we started. It was growing our food and I would recommend sticking to one or two plants per garden bed and maybe a companion plant in the corner to balance them off just so you have enough to can dehydrate save if you have a lot of different plants that are all unrelated it's really hard to focus and process each one and or save their seeds too um that's what i'm kind of dealing with right now I kind of dug myself a hole with doing that but next year i'm going to be much better at it i'm gonna um solidify my plan to a t so i can um, grow tea. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 companion planting is definitely one of those things that I think every new gardener should learn how to do right off the bat. I think it's one of the most important things. Of course, soil health and understanding all of that is critical as well. But when you, when it comes to planting, what I hope people start getting away from is typical row crops. Mm -hmm. Um, the basic vegetables everybody thinks they have to grow. Um, I don't recommend new homesteaders ever start with tomatoes. Start with something simple and guaranteed, like a pole bean. They, they, no matter what you do wrong, right? Any of those legumes, peanuts, pole beans, regular bush beans, any of that stuff is going to um, fight to stay alive and it will fight you to stay alive. But, but more importantly, anything that's better for your climate. So hotter climates need plants that handle that hotter time. And that's a little bit for them, but it's also for you, you know, to not feel like a failure. <laughs> you set yourself up for success. And then if you want to have a challenge, just know it's a challenge. Um, and one of the examples I always give with companion planting is, you know, tomatoes and basil. Grow them together and you're going to have a lot fewer pests and a lot fewer headaches on your hands. Um, so I would love to wrap up our conversation with a discussion about your pets as you make products and you have uh, two cats and you have a cute little dog that's so, so well behaved. And I love all the videos that you show of him. Um, it makes me really disappointed in my dogs. But one of my problems with making products is that I tend to always find a dog hair somewhere, no matter how hard I try. So if you could just shed a teeny bit of light on how you avoid that common problem, that'd be amazing. So for my cats, um, we have a no kitten policy in the kitchen. They know to stand um, or sit over the line of the kitchen. So they are not allowed at all ever in the kitchen, no matter what. So that kind of helps me with them. They are demons. So I'm really looking forward to them being outside. But Fry's allowed everywhere. He usually is outside. He really likes to sunbathe. Um, but he's not like shaking his fur off everywhere. So it's really just making sure your um, towels and your clothes are clean. So I wear a new clean shirt 
clean pants. And um, when I'm wiping off my hands to dry them, I do not use towelettes or like kitchen rags or anything like that. Like the one thing I did learn from the um, Colorado cottage food class from the CSU extension was that you do not want to use towels. And I did not know that before. So that course taught me so much about food safety and health and everything. Um, so I do unfortunately have to use those paper towels and that reduces any type of risk that I'll stick my hand on, you know, a kitchen towel covered in dog hair. Um, I also have a ton of hair, so I do put it up in a bun when I'm making towel bomb or something like that. And that reduces the risk of anything being in your products. And the courses like that, I it just taught me so much. I do have experience being a baking assistant at a cupcake shop, which taught me a lot about working in a kitchen where you're making food for the public. Um, but other than that, I didn't really have a lot of experience making, especially like face products and stuff like that. And the Colorado Cottage Food Course was very, very boring, four hour long course that I had to pass like with a quiz and everything. So it was great. Yeah, and that and that's probably a lot like food handling in Texas, where um, I've had to take a couple courses. And when you are in a professional environment, it's so much easier to adhere to those rules. But you go to your home, and it's so easy to make the mistake of just putting your hand on your hip, or you know, mm-hmm. holding your phone and forgetting to wash in between those steps. And yeah, I mean, I definitely do the same thing where I'll catch myself making a, the tiniest error. I'd have to go rewash and yeah, paper towels are kind of the only way to um, handle that problem. So I really appreciate you taking your time today. I, you have no idea how um, interesting this information is. I mean, this is, there's so many products that you talked about today and so many different things that I had never heard of before, um, before knowing you at least. And I wouldn't have known any idea how to make. Um, and I just love that you are able to forage and grow a lot of these pieces to the puzzle and be able to share so many amazing natural products with people um, clearly so that you can just share them and not to, you know, make a living off of, I mean, you obviously have a full-time job and everything else and I think us as homesteaders, we all want to do our absolute best and do our best every single time, you know, the absolute most, not cut any corners and everything else. And um, it's always helpful to know that it is difficult for all of us to source these right materials and um, finding information can sometimes be a little bit challenging and that we're not alone (laughs) in these challenges, but um, I definitely encourage anybody who is looking to make products or looking just to purchase more natural products to reach out to Katie, because I do think that it's always great that homesteaders make their own and do their own and be as natural as possible. But sometimes it always helps to have a helping hand and, Mm -hmm. you know, bridge the gap as often as possible. And um, I'm personally trying to learn to do that more. So if you're looking to reach out to Katie, her information is going to be um, in the episode description, you can reach her so easily through Instagram at the Western Wonder Woman. And if you have any trouble doing that, just reach out to me and I'll make sure to get you in touch. So Katie, thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate all the information you shared. Thank you so much.